Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yoma, daf pei aleph, page 81. So we have a new mission on this page, but before we get to that, and Yerdena, I know you're going to talk about it, I want to finish off a little bit of the discussion from the previous daf, but on this daf, actually, for a change, which is that there's the Gemara here says, Ha'ochel ein We've been talking about shiurim, we've been talking about the measurements, the measures, rather, I guess, not measurements, of how much um, you would need to eat or alternatively to drink to violate the precepts of Yom Kippur of not eating and not drinking. And the Gemara here makes the point, I mean, it was in the Mishnah originally, but now the Gemara is going to talk about it, that the food and drink do not combine. What does it mean they do not combine? It means that, let's say the amount is kikotevet for eating, and the amount is, for drinking is malolugmav, you can't have like to join together with whatever, even if it were the right amount that it would actually work in terms of volume, let's say, it does not mitzteref. It does not join, combine together to make a full shiur, a full unit of, you know, ingesting material that would make somebody, you know, violate Yom Kippur. It has to be either ochel or shtia, either food or drink. Mantana, the Gemara says, which Tana taught this? How do we know this? I'm Rav Chista, but Rav Chista says it was really a halacha that was taught as a matter of a dispute. Meaning this was always a machloket. Rabbi Yoshua taught this, meaning this Mishnah is in accordance with Rabbi Yoshua, but the original learning of it was always in a machloket. It's none. Klal amar Rabbi Yoshua, kol shetumato v'shiro shaveh mitztarev. So this is interesting. It takes us a little bit further afield. Rabbi Yeshua's general principle is as follows. If you have an item that is identical, shaveh, right, is identical to another of the same item, but in specifically in talking about ritual impurity, right? So let's say you're talking about impurity of one item and impurity of another item. Can it come together to make, you know, more impurity? So, the, so Rabbi Yeshua's position is that if the items are identical, in their type of ritual impurity. So it's the same kind of impurity and it's the same uh, bishuro and it's the same measure, the same volume of how much of it is. Then that will combine. Then that will combine to be you know, that that amount of impure of however much each part by itself. So for example, you could have two, you have, you have a half a kazayat of one, I don't know, piece of an animal carcass and another half a kazayat from a different piece of animal carcass, and they're both tame, right? So then, theoretically, anyway, this would all combine um, in terms of making everything impure. So the claim then is that everything is equal, um, and you can, and when the things are equal, that they will combine to be to render an impurity. Um, the Gemara continues though to mato the loshiro. If it was just tame and it wasn't the same amount, or alternatively shiro the lo tumato. Or if it was a different, it was the right amount, but it was a different kind of tuma, a different degree of tuma, really. Lo lo shiro, then that counts. You know, any one of these cases where you have, yes, the same kind of tuma, but not the right kind of measure, or the same kind of measure, but not the same kind of tuma, or neither, right? Neither the right kind, the same kind of tuma, nor the right the same measure. Then ain mitzterfin, then they would not combine. The implication being, of course, that the same way that they would not combine for the purposes of tuma. They're also not going to combine for the purposes of um, adding up to be one full shiur that is a violation of eating and drinking on Yom Kippur. You have to have either eating 
or drinking. So I, I think this, like, it makes sense why the Gemara goes to this discussion. Like, the discussion is not shocking, right? It just seems like the obvious extension of what was discussed before. Um, and I think it gets back to what was on the previous stuff, which is there's something about the sheer of the eating and the drinking, which is just so different. And its understanding is different that even though it's one Inuit, it's one affliction, so maybe it should be combined, but it's still sort of acknowledging eating and drinking is still very different. And so we really. Yeah, and I think that the eating and drinking in Kippur is particularly different. We didn't really talk about this, but the measure for violating drinking on Yom Kippur is a really different measure than the usual measure of drinking. Meaning, we talked about it very briefly, right? If usually a measure for drinking is a revi'it, a revius, right? Which we said is, you know, imagine your general kiddush cup size. But Malol Lugmav is, originally that was supposed to be what a revi'it is, right? But we don't talk about it in the context of revi'it anymore. We talk about it as your cheekful. It's a very different concept of what is this, you know, gulp of, of liquid supposed to do for you? And I think that takes us back to yesterday's stuff. So without further ado, let's come to today. Yes, so now we're going to move on to uh, the next Mishnah. So let's say somebody ate and drank within sort of, you know, he forgets it's Yom Kippur, he or she forgets it's Yom Kippur, and sort of drinks to get, you know, eat and drink sort of in the same moment or the same train of thought. They only need to bring one chatat, that person. But let's say, they ate, right? So they violated one of the afflictions and they also did malacha, chayef shei chata'ot. They have to bring two different chata'ot. Again, because the idea is it's really two, even though it's within the same time frame, you know, so let's say it was, they cooked an egg, right? So, uh, you know, so you did it in the same time frame, but it was two, sort of two different isurim there. <laughs> Let's say you ate food that is something that's not normally eaten. Or you drink liquids that are not really supposed to be drunk. Or if you drink fish brine or sort of some type of briny liquid, right, which fish are pickled in. They love their pickled fish. That always gets brought up, I feel like, in the Michigan It does, tomorrow. but I got to say, people today also seem to love their pickled fish. I yes, they do. That's true. Um, they are patur because again, this is not a typical manner of eating or drinking. So I think the Mishnah is just giving a very typical example of this. But Anne, I know you'll talk about this a little bit later. So the Gemara starts with the following here. I'm a Rish Lakish. So Rish Lakish makes a very interesting observation. When we have all the psukim about Inui that one has to afflict themselves, it's really a positive commandment. So in other words, I think we think of the five things that we don't do, right? Not eating and drinking, uh, the not washing, the not smearing yourself with oil, um, the, uh, you know, the shoes that we wear, and also the, you know, that uh, the conjugal relationships and all those things are sort of, it's a prohibition. But what Rach Lekish is paying attention to is that if you look at the actual language of where it appears, it's more positive commandment. The commandment is that one should afflict themselves during the day not that one should refrain from those activities. And so therefore he says, why isn't there an Azhara? Why doesn't it say you are not allowed to do these things? Instead it's saying, please afflict yourself, right? Um, and so therefore it says, Mishum Delo Efshar, 
right? Because it wouldn't be possible to write it that way. Now, what does it mean by that? How would it have been written? So if the Torah said one should not eat, then it would be talking about you shouldn't eat the amount of a kezayis because that's typically the amount that we use for foods that are prohibited. The shiur is a kezayis. And we know that actually the shiur is um, larger for Yom Kippur. So in other words, the idea is, is that if they wrote it in the prohibitive ashara way, some of the specific details or nuances of the halachot of the yunim would be lost by doing it as an ashara. Right, and let's say the Torah had written, right, do not be afflicted, right? In other words, that like that would be sort of the opposite of saying like you should be afflicted. So then it would be the opposite would be do not be afflicted. That would sort of mean you should get up and you should go and eat. Um, and so therefore, what the pasuk really says, if you look in Vayikra, chapter twenty three, verse twenty nine right, is that it really says whoever is not afflicted, right, they will get kares. That's really what it's saying. Whoever doesn't do affliction, they will get kares. But it's not written in this sort of traditional azhara way because it just kind of wouldn't make sense. It, it, it creates a lot of different difficulties. Now, well, Hoshia wants to come and he objects to this, right? Matkid lover of Hoshia. pen lotuna. Why doesn't the Torah say, guard yourself, lest you be not afflicted? In other words, it's almost like a double negative, right? Make sure, be careful that you are not not afflicted, right? And so it says, right? If so, it would just be too many negative mitzvah, right? That in other words, it's just, it's, it's basically, I think the way I understood this, and Anne, tell me if you disagree, it's almost like, it's like a double negative to write that azhara that way. And it's just not the way that we write negative commandments. So it's just not the way the Torah would actually write something. Did you understand? That's how I understood what, what he's saying here. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know if I thought, I, I hate to admit this, but I'm not sure that I thought about it in that, to this degree. I was thinking more about the fact that, you don't know, remember several dap in Magoyer, Dana, you talked about how, you know, we don't have this obligation to go if it's cold to go to go sit in the cold or to go make ourselves uncomfortable, right? So I was thinking about all of this discussion in that context and kind of got that was that was where my thinking led me. Oh, interesting. Okay, that's a totally good another read here. Um, and so then the Gemara goes on to say, and this is the last bit, all right? Matibla Rabibi Bar Abaye, right? So now we have another objection from Rabibi. So why couldn't it say guard yourself in the mitzvah of affliction? And I think this objection really drives it home. Like, again, until I read this patches of the Gemara, I never thought about the Iyunim this way. I always thought about them in terms of it's a prohibition. And we teach it that way to kids, right? These are the things we don't do on Yom Kippur. I don't think we really teach a bit of, of these are the things we do to fulfill the mitzvah, the positive commandment of Inuit. Right. So if we use the words of guard yourself, right, which is written as a prohibition as a lav, and it's to be considered as a, a, a lav, he right? Then the words guard yourself should be written, you know, sort of if the words guard yourself are written about a positive commandment, it really just ends up being an assay. In other words, what we're sort of, you know, 
what he's trying to, what he's saying here is that had the, it, the Torah wrote it in that way, right? Then you would understand there was a positive mitzvah of inui, of affliction, but there wouldn't be any element of a prohibition. In other words, attacking on the word hishamer to a positive, right? Rabibi, it doesn't solve anything. It just sort of emphasizes the positive commandment piece of this, but it doesn't automatically turn it into a negative commandment. Matibla Rav Ashi. So Rav Ashi is also going to object to this. Nichtov altasur min ha'inui. So he comes up with, don't stray from afflicting yourself. And that somehow the Gemara likes better that this has more of a flavor of being a negative commandment with the positive commandment. And so the Gemara says, Kasha. They said, yep, it could have been written that way. Now, one thing I was also very sensitive to while I was reading this whole passage is there's sort of an element of the Hebrew language here, or let's say of Torah language, that didn't totally make sense to me. I really had to read this passage multiple times because to be honest, when I read this particular section, I didn't totally understand the difference between Rabibi and, you know, Ravashi. Why is Hishamer somehow only positive, right? Because I guess it's saying Hishamer, guard yourself, you know, that you're doing the positive commandment, whereas Lotas Altasur, don't stray from, has more of a sense of a negative commandment. But there is this sort of linguistic piece here to this whole discussion back and forth that I don't think I totally understood because let's say Torah, biblical Hebrew is not my first language. So, so that also struck me about this passage. But I think the take-home message here is really remember that the Enoi is a positive commandment. And I'm going to rethink this a lot now when I think about Yom Kippur. Maybe I knew this, but this was not something that I had explicitly articulated for myself until I read this passage here. I do think the language of it is like this double negative, as you say, right? The the idea that there's a commandment to do something that is a negative experience is already inherently interesting. Um, and then, as I said, like the question of how far we have to go with that um, when we're told we don't have to go, we don't have to, we have to do these five things. We don't have to do some other creative interpretation of what does suffering or affliction mean? which that that distinction, I think, is also important and part of the, the essence of Yom Kippur. Um, the one other thing I just want to comment was the language of the Mishnah, where it says, Behalei Machad, um, those of you, our co-learners who are with us from Masechet Shabbat, will surely recall this as, you know, also in the same context of how many chata'ot do you have to bring in how much time, you know, how much time where you have done X number of different violations. There we saw it in the context of Avot and Toledot, as well, and here we we see it in the context specifically of you know you have different kinds of violations that one could do in Yom Kippur, some of many of which will incur a chatat, and how many of them can be subsumed under one chatat because it's the same violation. In this case, really, it seems we're just talking about eating. Right. Yes, and I think thank you for re reminding us of sort of this section that appeared in uh, in Masach and Shabbat. I want to just jump to the end of the daf. This is a very, I found it to be a very long daf. Um, uh, so on Amabet, it goes back to the Mishnah, to the end of the Mishnah, and it says, Right? If somebody ate food that is not fit for eating, then you're exempt, meaning you don't have to bring any kind of carbon for the fact that you did this eating. Rava, Amarava, Kas Pilpalei, Pilpalei, Patur, Kas Zinvigi. Okay, let's see if I can say this. Zangvila, 
patur. So Rava says, if you chew raw pepper on Yom Kippur, you're patur, you're exempt, you don't have to bring a korban. It's not eating, meaning that's not food, that's not what we do, that's not eating. And he says, similarly, if you chew ginger, that's the zangvila word, um, then you'd also be exempt. Now, this is interesting because ginger is made a resurgence, right? It's kind of a fashionable food again. And still, right, it's very strong. And it's not necessarily the kind of thing that you just chew on like a carrot, right? It's something that is used for seasoning. It's used even intensively in some different kinds of cuisines, but not that you would sit there and just chew it on Yom Kippur. So the Gemara raises an objection, of course. Meitve, so Rabbi Meir would say, there's a verse in Leviticus, right, in Vayikra, about the orla, about the, this is, um, orla is a tree, you plant a fruit tree, and then it takes three years, full three years of regular growth before you can harvest the, the fruit from those trees. And honestly, it turns out that most fruit trees don't give fruit that fast, but that's a separate issue. The idea is that this is the, the verse that he's citing, Varlatem, Arlato, and Piryo. He's talking about um, this particular Pusik that's talking about this business of the tree. Namely, you should come, you should count the fruit of that tree as forbidden. Arlato, um, et Piryo, Eni Odea, She'et Machalhu. How do you know, right, that the fruit, that the tree is talking about um, trees that are, that have, what do we call these trees? Fruit trees, I guess, right? I don't know if there's any other kind of name for this. It means specifically trees that bear some kind of edible something. So does not mean, the Gemara says, it does not mean that it has um, fruit. It's not a fruit-bearing tree. Trees for food. Rather, it means specifically a tree that the tam eats, that the taste of the tree itself, presumably the wood, upirio, the tree of the wood and the fruit, shaveh, they have the same taste. So the Gemara concludes that whole discussion of the tree, meaning the wood, the bark, and the fruit itself having the same taste, the Gemara concludes that that is talking about pepper. Which suggests, meaning it teaches, that pilpel, pepper, is going to be an orla-required kind of food, meaning it must be food if you have to take orla from it um, to make sure that you can you bring the first fruits to, to Hashem. And again, you orla, it's again, it's only going to be something that you can eat. Um, it's only taken from something that you could eat. And the claim here is, that we learn from all this about the pepper, that Israel, the land of Israel, lacks for nothing because pepper can grow there, right? Meaning, and, and it's part of the claim of where it says, that, you know, nothing, you who moved to Israel will lack for nothing because you know what? There's even a pepper tree that will grow there. Meaning you have every spice of life in the land of Israel. So, Really, all of this is still about the discussion of, you know, could this be considered food or not considered food? The first claim is that it's not, that it's not food. That was Rava. Then the Gemara claims that Rabbi Meir would have said that this is food. And it gives you all of this proof from the discussion in Vayikra, and, I mean, on the verse from Vayikra. And then the Gemara concludes, Lokasha, ha 
Habivishta. The Gemara says it's not difficult. We don't have a we don't have a conflict here, a contradiction. Rather, we're talking. It's considered edible if it's fresh pepper, and then it's moist, and you can just eat it. And the halacha of Bayim Kippur was that whole discussion from Rava was talking about dry pepper, and therefore it's not considered food. And then it goes on to talk further about ginger, and you know the fact that it comes from India, which, by the way, is amazing. That is here. It's right here in the Gemara when it's something that we also all know, right, in terms of Indian cuisine. Certainly, there's a great amount of ginger, but my interest here is simply the very fact that you can have a, dis- a debate, you know, on the question of is that a food that is edible or not edible? And we're not talking about preferences. We're not talking about food tastes, right? What what somebody likes. We're consider, you know, I think everybody would consider pepper a valid spice to spice the food, but you don't consider it food itself if it's dry. The moment it's then that's that's something else. It's in a category of not food, and also you don't eat it in quantity, right? It's not the kind of thing that you would ever come to a kikotevit of eating dry pepper. And also, I think everybody understands that while pepper might is a spice, right? It it certainly enhances your food, but but when it's meaning, I'm talking specifically about the dry pepper. People are not going to be going to eat it. Certainly not in the amount of a kikotevit to begin with. That is not. And, and therefore, you see it being not a food. So in the context of Yom Kippur, I think we do have a sense that there are certain things that although we ingest them, which is technically, I guess, called eating, the food itself is not considered food, is not considered edible. It has a different function, such as pepper to spice your food, as compared to eating for nourishment or for satiation or for to rest, you know, to provide peace of mind, as we discussed the other day. So I also think that... Um... You made a very important point. I think ingesting is different than eating. And especially when the Gemara gives the explanation that eating has to sort of, the, 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 the measurement of the date is because it settles one's mind, then it has to be food that you typically eat. If you eat something that you don't normally eat, that's not going to settle your mind from hunger. No, for sure not. For sure not. I feel like half the time, and again, I'm talking about a growing boy in my house, but I feel like half the time food that I think would like keep you for hours on end doesn't even settle that satisfy your mind, settle your mind, his mind. Right. But but I think there's an important distinguishing just, you know, something to distinguish here. And I think I'll, I'll sort of bring everything together since it's a positive commandment about affliction. It makes sense, therefore, that the violation of eating is you ate enough that you're no longer afflicted. You settled your mind. And right. that's why I think also that's it's that you have to eat food that's actual food. Whereas opposed to, I think, some of the other isurim about around eating, that's why it's like a kazais. You ate something that you weren't supposed to eat that's not kosher or something like that. It's a small amount of food because it has nothing to do with how you felt about the food. There's an emotive piece here because the commandment right. of affliction is, is emotive. Right. I think that's true. And I think that that is... You talked about the way you the way the Gemara presents Enoi. I think that distinction is going to inform Mayim Kippur, I hope, please God, coming up, meaning in several months, right? Because I think that we don't I right, it's so easy to end up focusing on the particulars of Yom Kippur as opposed to taking that step back and saying, look, there is an emotive piece here that the whole idea of fasting is part of right it's part of it it's not the only part it's not the only thing refraining from food is technically what you do 
but your experience of the day, at least theoretically, is supposed to be a bigger picture than just refraining from food and drink. Right, because it's not refraining from food and drink. It's not feeling, it, it's not enjoying, certain, well, no, it's afflicting yourself in the spirit of that day. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to our name, Michelle Farber, for hosting us on the Hundred website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and its reframing, or at least it reframed for me, uh, some of what we do in Yom Kippur on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 